0: Welcome to the Building Confidence podcast brought to you by KPMG, where we explore a range of issues impacting stakeholder confidence in governance, corporate reporting, and audit. I'm Michelle Hinchliffe, and I'm your host for today. And in today's episode, we're looking at financial crime and cyber risk, which I suspect are high on the risk registers of companies ranging from the largest global organizations to the smallest entities. Preventing and detecting financial crime is rapidly evolving to one of the biggest challenges facing organisations, with the impact extending beyond monetary loss to reputation and brand, stakeholder relations and regulatory censure. And today I'm delighted to be joined by two fabulous guests who have a wealth of experience in this industry, uh, Jonathan Evans and Geraldine Laylor. And uh, I might hand it over to them to
1: introduce themselves and talk about their experience. Firstly, Geraldine. Thank you, Michelle. So, um, so I joined KPMG in 2020 as the global head of financial crime, having come in off industry where I spent over 30 years uh, working in industry in a number of areas. And within that, the last 17 were spent in financial crime itself. My last role was as the global head of financial crime for a major global bank and within that I was responsible for the global design, implementation and delivery of an effective financial crime risk management strategy and policy framework. Alongside the role I played in the industry I was also very active at an industry level having chaired a number of industry working groups and uh, the last one in UK finance where I actually chaired the financial crime committee and through that actually was the industry lead on the Economic Crime Reform Programme. I was also one of the founding members of the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, which is the UK Public-Private Partnership. And I was the UK industry lead for the anti-money laundering arm of the Five Eyes Law Enforcement Group. Thank you, Geraldine.
0: And Jonathan, perhaps if you could also introduce yourself.
2: Thanks, Michelle. Yes, I'm Jonathan Evans, and I'm chair of the Public Interest Committee at KPMG. My main career was with MI5, where I was the Director General for six years, uh, and in that time I specialised on counter espionage, counterterrorism, both international and domestic, and uh, we were heavily involved in initiatives against cyber threats. I've also been a non-executive director of a global bank, uh, where I chaired a specialist committee which was created to combat financial crime risk.
0: Thank you, uh, Jonathan and Geraldine. Delighted that both of you could join us for today's conversation. Now, Geraldine, I'm going to start with you and maybe to set the scene. And perhaps you could briefly outline for us first the types of activities that fall within the definition of financial crime.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Um, very happy to. So I suppose this has a broad um, expanse, particularly and how it impacts uh, upon the industry. And if I look at it from first a legal perspective, but then the operational perspective, in the UK we have uh, a piece of legislation called the Financial Services and Markets Act. And within that, it defines financial crime as including money laundering, terrorist financing, market abuse and fraud. And then when you look at organisations and how they operationally look at this particular area and how they manage it, financial crime tends to include, again, the money laundering and terrorist financing pieces, but also sanctions, anti-bribery and corruption, anti-tax evasion, and then fraud as well. We also had, there's a lot of conversations going on across the market in terms of how market abuse and the money laundering in markets are starting to move closer together. And the recognition of, of how those combined capabilities are impacting an organisation and how they're looking to manage those under a more consolidated risk management framework. And then you have the cyber enabled elements and so the cyber enabled crime is starting to intersect very closely into fraud and into AML and I think lastly as modern slavery is also coming to the fore more and more a corporate criminal liability offence that's very closely aligned in how you would manage that risk within organisations to the anti-bribery and corruption and the anti-tax evasion aspects. So in essence, what you end up with are sort of a collection of what we would call different technical disciplines, but it basically comes down to financial crime is starting to cover AML, terrorist financing, sanctions, bribery and corruption, anti-tax evasion, modern slavery, market abuse and fraud. And within that, including cyber enabled crime so so quite a lot actually that comes under that heading Abs- absolutely
0: and, and and i think what you've probably highlighted is the challenge Um, to directors and management of companies in terms of the breadth of areas that that really is um, being picked up within this umbrella. So maybe if if we can focus into a a couple of specific areas there um, and and let's pick up on perhaps cyber risks and also internal fraud risks. So Jonathan, I'm going to turn to you now, um, perhaps in in respect of cyber crime. Uh, And we know that cyber-enabled fraud is growing uh, it's it's a, a crime that's estimated to have a, um, a staggering impact of $450 billion annually. And in a recent survey, 53% of CEOs said that becoming a victim of a cyber attack is a case of when, not if. So if we focus on cyber crime, what's actually driving this growth?
2: I think what's driving it is opportunity, because as more and more of our lives moves into the digital sphere, uh, as business, as commerce, as our personal finances and our, our personal lives, our social lives all move online, then inevitably criminals will go there too, because that's where the opportunities lie. And I think the cyber domain is particularly attractive to you know, what, we, what we sometimes call the bad actors, because it's probably easier to mount a crime in cyberspace than it is in some other in, in, in as it were, the real world. Uh, typically, and I think the data bears this out, cyber crimes are more lucrative per crime than, uh, than as it were, real world fr- uh, criminal acts of various sorts. Uh, I think it's also harder to detect who is behind the crime. It's easier to maintain your anonymity. And I think it's also much harder for law enforcement to protect against and to investigate cyber crime. And we'll, I'm sure, be coming on to that. So, you know, any any sensible criminal will be moving their operations online because they will get a better return for their activity and the risks are lower. And I think if you look at the people who are we need to worry about, it is, you know, traditional crime groups, but there's also a nexus with states and with uh, state agencies, etc. So you've got a very rich tapestry of attackers as well.
0: So, so Jonathan, the um and that that that's really fascinating. If we look over the last couple of years, um, it feels as though there's more um reported incidents of cyber cyber attacks, um, and I I, I suspect the figures do bear that out. And clearly, that's coincided with a with a period of uh, unprecedented disruption because of COVID. So. Do you think COVID has impacted cyber risks with more people working from, from home?
2: I think it has. I think as people are moving to work, have moved to work from home, they may well have less secure connections to their corporate networks. They're likely to be using a variety of different devices. Uh, and, you know, you may feel a little bit more relaxed in a home environment uh, and you may well be mixing up your personal activities and your commercial uh, business life uh more uh, regularly and all of those uh, offer opportunities for the attackers uh and at the same time we've seen a change in the 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 operating model of quite a lot of attackers Uh, getting access to compute to other people's digital systems is you know not as difficult as it should be but the question then is how do you monetize that how do you turn that into a, a criminal return and particularly over the last two years we've seen a massive increase in ransomware which is effectively online extortion uh, as people rec- are vulnerable and the uh, the returns for those ransom attacks have been generous so again criminals are moving into that space and once they see that it works others join them
0: okay thank, thank you maybe Geraldine um, if just turning to you if we look at um, those perpetrating financial crime. So so Jonathan's set out, um, uh, I guess, some views on cyber. But if we look at the key motivators for those perpetrating financial crime, what would you say they are?
1: Well, interesting. Jonathan mentioned about opportunity very clearly there. And when you start to look, particularly focusing in on fraud, for example, they talk about this fraud triangle that's made up of What's the pressure, what drives a person to commit a fraud for example, where's the opportunity and then how do they rationalise that out the other side. And so the pressure is often what drives people towards that and that can be lifestyle, a life of crime, it's they don't know any any better particularly when you get into organised crime, how how people are recruited into that particular world as well is, is is a big area of focus. And so it's any kind of criminal conduct that we're seeing out there, the the biggest driver and motivator tends to centre on money. And certainly when we were working with law enforcement quite closely through a number of investigations when I was at industry, um, whilst whilst law enforcement can focus on the crime itself, um, gradually we began to to realise that actually it was all about following the money. And money seemed to be at the centre of all this. And when you start Stripping back and looking at the different crime types that are out there, whether it's human trafficking, illegal logging, corruption or individual fraud or organised crime itself, money tends to be at the heart of it. And it certainly is a motivating factor uh, behind uh, behind the actual perpetrating of crimes themselves, as as Jonathan mentioned there, you know, monetising it and what is the return they get from the actual activity itself. So, Jonathan, if you
0: take that and um, back to, I guess, the, the cyber crime uh, motivators, you know, we have spoken spoken about money as being one of the the key motivators, but it also feels like disruption is 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 also a, a key motivator. What what are your thoughts on that?
2: I think the, the the whole area of cyber risk is made very complicated by the fact that there are so many. Uh, bad actors out there. So, you know, cyber, the cyber domain, it helps spies, it helps people to, you know, governments to obtain information that they would otherwise not be able to obtain. Uh, it is obviously, and as we have mentioned, it's a, a very attractive area for criminals. Uh, we see uh, terrorists sniffing around at this, trying to see if there are ways in which they can disrupt. And increasingly, there is state activity which aims both to undermine uh, confidence in, for instance, democratic institutions in in Western countries and also links into the, the organized crime groups. So, you know, there is no clear defining line between the activities of some governments on the one hand and some organized crime groups on the other. And the reason for that is partly because Uh, of corruption within certain governments and the fact that they're happy to enrich themselves. And and also some states are deliberately using this as a way of trying to uh, raise funds, particularly those that are subject, for instance, to international sanctions, etc. So you've got a really wide group of individuals out there who are looking for vulnerabilities and exploiting vulnerabilities, and some of them work collaboratively with each other. And that raises a different risk profile, particularly for corporations uh, who have got exposure to a variety of markets.
0: Thanks for that. So we, we covered off, I think, quite a lot around around the actors and the and the, the motivations. Maybe Geraldine turning to you around detection. So So companies are spending a lot of money addressing financial crime risks. Uh, what do you think are the most effective mechanisms, Geraldine, for detecting internal fraud?
1: So it comes back down to uh, having the right control environment to to detect it, and and I suppose the the first thing I would say though is you don't want to be in the space of just detection. What you want to do is prevent it in the first place, and so. And that's why, you know, an organisation in managing that needs to think about the controls to prevent the opportunity from being there in the in the first instance. And then notwithstanding that actually have the mechanisms to detect it if if actually people are able to sort of breach beyond those controls, because we do see within organisations where you have things like segregation of duties um, is that through collusion, people can actually manage to get around it. So you need to have those detection mechanisms after that. So in terms of managing that risk within an organization, it tends to be multifaceted in, in terms of how that is, is um, undertaken. And so you start to see a framework come into play that has a very clear sort of policy in terms of what's the risk appetite for the firm, how you know, what is this the sort of uh, messages that we're sending to the people that you know work within the firm, the employees, in terms of our attitude and our appetite towards this. And then you have the controls that fit in and around that in terms of how that gets managed. And I mentioned the segregation of duties. You're also seeing things like controlling access to data, uh, limiting access to even external websites and even email accounts. Um, And then you'll have things sitting across that, like how how employees are surveilled in terms of their behaviour aligned to all of that. What is also seen as critically important as part of a a framework for prevention is the whole training and education of employees. So the people, uh, your employees understand what their obligations are. They understand the controls in place. They understand that they are being monitored as well within that. Um, And then around that, you also have the whole quality control, quality assurance uh, mechanisms in place to evidence that your framework is working effectively, whilst at the same time allowing Um, opportunities for employees to raise concerns if they identify any observations of wrongdoing through um, initiatives like whistleblowing mechanisms, for example. And I think the last thing you want to see is consequence management as well coming into play so that employees know that if they do commit fraud and they are, um, you know, detected within that, there is consequences and others see that and appreciate that. So there's a lot of risk involved in that. And so what I tend to see across organisations that manage this well, is having a full understanding and appreciation uh, of how to manage this risk across the board from setting the policy and framework, then down through the organisation and making sure the controls are there to not give the employee the opportunity to commit fraud. But where they do, you then have to detect the detection mechanisms to come in around it, um, you know, to actually support that. Okay. so I'm going to pick up on a couple of points you covered. Um, Firstly,
0: the risk appetite, and and maybe Jonathan, one one for you, um, around setting the the risk appetite, um, and I know a number of companies do struggle with this. Is it reasonable to say that your risk appetite is is nil, that you won't tolerate any cyber crime?
2: The danger is that if you try and protect absolutely everything to the same level, you will probably run out of resource and time before you've actually got to the desired state. Now, obviously nobody wants any kind of cyber risk uh, to eventuate, but you need to focus on the areas of most damage. So that will vary depending on the company. If you're a bank, then you know crime will obviously be a big issue. If you are an infrastructure provider, then it may be the, uh, the resilience of the infrastructure that you provide. So you need to think about this from the perspective of your company What is it that you particularly need to worry about that would be catastrophic for you as a company and start there? And, you know, you can move out in rings of protection. But the first thing to know is, you know, what are what they call the crown jewels and focus your effort first on protecting those. And then you can have the opportunity as you know, the situation as your own protection levels improve. You can then think about the other things that it would be desirable to do. But I think if you try to do the whole thing in one leap, it can be just too difficult and you are then leaving yourself open to really serious problems.
1: OK, and Geraldine, would you agree with Jonathan on that? I would and I would add to what he he is saying and almost what he describes there. I would liken to a risk assessment of the firm, so where a firm will actually look at the risks it actually has aligned to what clients it serves, what what its products and services look like, what are the vulnerabilities there, and then what are the risks it's, it's, it's trying to protect and mitigate? And within that, you won't see a sort of a zero tolerance. You will see actually that there will always be residual risk that's there. And that almost speaks to the appetite that they have for that residual risk. And and as Jonathan mentioned there, there will be higher risks. And you will see those like within a risk assessment that sort of gives effect to that. And, and then the, the lower risks and but a very clear understanding of what the control framework looks like to manage those. And that's often a really solid base for any organisation if they get into trouble to be able to demonstrate and evidence what their framework looked like even if they were exposed to fraud as a result of it and that adds strength to any defence that they would have in terms of the the organisation not protecting itself from fraud for example so those are things that are really important and part of any framework the whole risk assessment piece is critical. Great some really
0: helpful advice thank thank you so That was around the setting of the risk appetite. Another area, um, Jolene, I wanted to pick up in terms of uh, your your articulation um, around the the frameworks you need to have in place. You brought in surveillance um, and and the surveillance of employees. And I'm going to turn to the current working environment uh, with hybrid working. How do companies uh, or what do they need to do differently? With, with many employees now working from home, how do they have to change their controls or, or are there new things they need to,
1: to, to, to put in place to deal with this? It's a great question, actually, because um, there it was a recent survey that came out from UK Finance and I had seen others in the market looking at this particular aspect because, you know, from an internal fraud perspective and the control environment that operates within organisations, enterprises are not set up for managing the, you know, or monitoring um, and 100% virtual working that goes on out there, uh, so you know the whole anti-fraud and cyber security aspect as well had somewhat got deprioritized when COVID hit because the focus was keeping the lights on, you know, keeping the show on the road. As a result of that, but as we are coming through that and out the other side, there is this heavy reliance as well on your staff and employees doing the right thing and being seen to do the right thing. So part of that is comes down through your values, your culture, the training, the education, those softer aspects of a control environment become really important, as well as continuing obviously to use those harder controls around access to information, you know, I mentioned sort of access to data, their ability to even from home access their sort of Gmail, external Gmail accounts, all of those things become quite, quite important. So um, and what I have seen in in organisations is that real focus on that sort of training, education, making sure people are aware of whistleblowing. Um, uh, sort of capabilities or the procedures within a firm as well. And so that tends to be the focus at the moment in terms of how how to continue to operate the controls within that particular um, environment. Uh, I suppose, as we go into more of a hybrid working, it becomes less critical. The, I think the other thing as well, that's, that's quite important is management's ability to oversee their staff, you know, and how they uh, keep on top of them, but also make sure that they are fine and that they understand, um what their obligations are and how how they perform within that and so that whole aspect is is equally being looked at those softer skills around management oversight and, and supporting people and i think just the one thing To say back to that is if you think about that sort of in the fraud triangle, um, the pressure on people, being very conscious of where they are from a personal perspective and being more acute to individuals' personal needs, because that becomes quite important uh, as one aspect to concentrate on when when you start thinking about this area. Thank you for
0: that, Jonathan. I'm going to ask you a similar question around surveillance. Um, and I think there's, there's been a, a number of reports around uh, software that uh, companies can put onto computers to to monitor the activities of, in, of employees. Um, and I guess there is a, a fine line between what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. What, what would your uh, views be, or, or any advice you would have to companies um, who, who who are looking at moving into this area?
2: I think we have to be very careful about the cultural messages that surveillance is sending, because if members of your company feel that the management doesn't trust them, that they will only expect you to work if you are being monitored, I think that's difficult. On the other hand, clearly everybody depends on each other in terms of their adherence to the rules. So I think it's very important to be quite open with uh, colleagues about what the policy is in a firm. I don't think some kind of secret surveillance system is likely to be a very good idea in the longer term. But if you are saying that we are look, looking at a variety of things just to make sure that if there are problems that people can be alerted to them, I think that's a very different message from we don't trust you and we're going to watch you every minute of the day. So I think you need to think about this not just as a technology issue but also as a cultural issue and that this needs to be seen as supporting staff to do the right thing rather than catching out staff who are doing the wrong thing, because otherwise you might have some quite negative uh, kind of impacts, I think, from that sort of model.
0: Okay, so maybe, thank you, maybe we could turn to uh, the lawmakers, Geraldine. So um, clearly, uh, there are many challenges that, that the lawmakers are facing in dealing with financial crime and, and particularly the evolution of that. But, but it'd be great to hear from you what some of these challenges are and how are they progressing in dealing with these?
1: So as is one of the biggest challenges we have in this particular space is that the whole end-to-end framework, and what I mean by that is from how policy gets set to the role of regulators, to the role of we say industry and on into uh, law enforcement is just seen as ineffective end to end. And what's driving that view of ineffectiveness is the fact that about one percent of illicit funds that flow through the system is confiscated and therefore 99 goes not so much undetected but certainly um, c- you know continues to 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 move through the system itself so that is a big issue and we have policy making bodies such as the financial action task force that are really talking about this whole area of effectiveness and when they come in and look at certain jurisdictions and countries under their mutual evaluation reviews, not only are they now looking at how you comply with their recommendations, but they're also looking at how effectively you're able to meet those recommendations. So starting to focus on outcomes, uh, rather than necessarily the technical aspects, although both are important because one lead to the other. So what that is driving as well are real conversations between uh, the industry and government, particularly here in the UK, but in other jurisdictions as well as to, OK, well, what does that mean in practice? What Needs to change. Where do we need to move to? Um, so there are a number of things happening in the UK, particularly. So we have a couple of um, new bills coming in. Uh, there's the Online Harms Bill, which is which is due in, as is the Economic Crime Reform um, Bill, or I think it's it's called the Economic Crime Bill itself. And they are bringing in a number of uh, sort of additions uh, into law that will actually help the system to work more effectively and start to think also about wider players that traditionally have not been part of the regulated sector. So social media and telecommunications, for example, are being looked at as well as to how to bring them in under the expectations of managing this particular area. There are legal protections being looked at as well for how firms can share information amongst each other. There are also legal protections around how you return funds to victims. There um, also are aspects being looked at as uh, protections for industry being able to slow down and interdict payments in flight. Obviously, you're thinking about how that sort of conflicts with PSD or the payment services directive requirements, which is all about sort of moving money through the system much quicker. And um, so and there are requirements within that piece of legislation that talk to speed in the system. And so, you know, on the fraud side, you say there's, there's this view that you, you need to be able to interdict, you need to be able to slow down to, to investigate, particularly in real time. Um, and they're looking at things like takedown powers for malicious sli- sites. So there's quite a bit actually going on in um, in that particular area around legal reform. There's also um, a lot going on on actual information sharing perspectives. Um, and interestingly, there's a shift away from a legal perspective from different powers on AML fraud and bribery and corruption to general powers on economic crime itself. So you're starting to see almost a convergence coming together within the legal framework aligned to what's happening in practice um, across the industry. Um, There's also legislative powers being looked at for the ability of organisations to share pre-suspicion Whereas traditionally, the best the industry has had has been post suspicion. So that will make a a big sea change in how intelligence and information can be shared um, amongst the different regulated players within the market. And then also things looking at how to clarify information sharing aligned to legitimate interests test, which comes in often under the privacy side. So there's a lot of work being done looking at how, from a policy perspective, the policy is being more thoughtful in terms of how it operates in practice. And that is the first time we are seeing that um, across the the industry and and the UK and even in other jurisdictions. And that is quite a sea change, but also great to see that because if you don't think about the operational effectiveness of your, your legal framework and you don't consider that, it just won't work. And I think that has been the challenge. Um, that we have faced for over 30 years working within this sort of environment and the regime um, is is that sort of lack of real policy that, that actually supports the underpinning of how people work uh, today and even how it's actually morphed and evolved the whole economic crime landscape as well. So a lot going on, very positive to see that change coming through. But obviously that will have to translate then into organisations in terms of how they reflect that within their programmes and how they start moving into more of that outcomes Based on effectiveness uh, approach to how they manage these risks. Okay, so so a lot for um,
0: companies to think about. So Jonathan, maybe I'm going to turn to you in terms of the role of non-executive directors. So so what should what role should they be playing in managing these risks?
2: I think non-executive directors are well positioned to ask those risk appetite questions. What is it that we really care about in this firm that we have to protect? I think they need to be satisfying themselves that this is being addressed, not just as a technology issue, but as a an issue for the people in the firm. So if it is just a technical response, then I think you need to scratch a bit deeper, dig a bit deeper. Non executive directors need to be thinking about the, the network within which their company works, because particularly for cybercrime, it's very often the case that vulnerabilities can be imported from your partners, from your supply chain. So if you are partnered with other organisations that aren't taking this seriously, that's a real vulnerability. You need to ensure that the executives are thinking about those aspects. And I would say absolutely critically, if you have a cyber incident, your ability to respond effectively, coherently and quickly to it, and the same would apply to a major fraud incident, is vital in terms of how much damage this is going to do to you. And as a non-executive director, if I am presented with the most marvellous system and it hasn't been exercised, then I would be deeply sceptical. People should be exercising their responses so that if the bad things happen, people know how to respond quickly and effectively and staunch the bleeding. And if they haven't done that, then you can't have confidence that the response is going to be effective.
0: Great advice Jonathan, thank you. Um, probably have time for one final question and it's really within that framework Jonathan, maybe I'll I'll start with you. Um, If if you could give some practical advice to board members, what one or two questions would you suggest they should be asking of management uh, to to, to help them uh, exercise those responsibilities?
2: Why does this matter to you? How confident are you that this is under control have you exercised it?
0: Great. And Geraldine, would you add anything to that?
2: I would. I'd sort of I'd
1: ask, what are our top risks? How are we mitigating them? And how can I evidence that to be the case? Brilliant. Some, some fantastic questions. Thank you
0: very much. And it's a great place to end um, today's podcast. We certainly have covered a lot of ground. Jonathan and Geraldine, thank you so much for sharing your um, thoughts and, you know, really uh, that coming off of just a wealth of experience the both of you have in the industry, so thank you very much. Um, and if I reflect on what we've covered, uh, it's, it, it's so so many areas. Firstly, I think you know this is such a wide area, Geraldine. You set out at the at the beginning the number of areas that that really come under this this banner. So a lot for people to think about, but some great steps in terms of things that you can do, assess the risks your point on the risk tolerance can, cannot be nil. You have to accept that there are some risks. you have got to focus on what really matters. And I think both of you very much highlighted the fact that you need a response and you've got to exercise it. So it's really important that you actually go through um, and role play to to understand people know what to do. Uh, Thank you so much for your time Um, with many more great guests in future episodes who, like Jonathan and Geraldine, are really passionate about good governance. So please do subscribe to our podcast to get alerted when new episodes are published. Thank you and goodbye for now.